Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to amazing women who are making a real difference. With our podcast, you'll hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges our guests have overcome, how their backgrounds help to shape who they are today, and more importantly, how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. And just wait, we've got a great one. Joining me today is Judy Greenhill, co-founder and CEO of Greenhill Anti-Ballistics Corporation. I feel so honored to have Judy on our podcast. I mean, she has an, an amazing story, but she's a real role model, I think, for all women. So let's hear more from Judy directly. Judy, thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's uh, my first podcast. <laughs> so it's <Yay>. fun. <laughs> <laughs> How ironic that I know you're in North Carolina right now and I'm in New York, but we found out that we kind of were very close to each other in Rye for a number of years. Absolutely. I miss New York. New York was the place that we landed when we emigrated in 1967 from Hong Kong to the United States. Yeah. In fact, you have such an incredible story and a very strong background that combines technology, finance, and a real passion for identifying emerging markets. Could you just maybe start off and tell our listeners about your background and how you got here and a little bit more about your family? Okay. My family were farmers in Canton, which is south of China. They were lucky to flee the communists in the early 50s and then left and landed in Hong Kong. And so I was born in Hong Kong. And in 1967, actually on August 30th, we flew from Hong Kong to New York City, Chinatown. <laughs> wow. So you've got an anniversary coming up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that is amazing. And and you didn't speak any English when you came here, is that correct? Yes, I did not speak a word of English. My dad worked as a cook in the restaurants in Chinatown. My mom was a seamstress. And the first two weeks of school, I went home crying because I told my mom, I don't understand what they're saying. And she said, you know, just stick with it. And then I decided either I'll sink or swim. And I decided to just learn and just listen. And my first thing I said in English was, I learned to raise my hands and ask to be excused to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are priorities. <laughs> Absolutely. And from then on, I wasn't afraid to speak in English. And just over time, I just picked up more words, sentences. And during lunchtime, I would have some of my fellow students sit down with me and they would help me learn to read passages of the books and the lessons that we were learning. So over time, the light bulb went off and I was able to keep up. <laughs> That's fabulous. And I know you grew up in Mulberry Street. Maybe you could talk a little bit more because that really leads to some early values. But you would share that it was a time where kids either joined a gang or they pursued education. Yes. When we were growing up, there were a lot of all our classmates were essentially all immigrants, whether they be from Taiwan, from mainland China, from Hong Kong. And they used to group us all in one class, even though we were different age groups and likely different grades. Some found it extremely frustrating and they would drop out and they would just hang out and they eventually joined gangs. But my parents had such a strong sense 
of the value of education. And after all, that's the reason why they decided to pick up from Hong Kong to come to New York is so that they can be assured that their kids, there were four of us, including myself, I'm the third, could have an education. And so it was up to us to do the best we can in school. And we were very lucky to not fall into the wrong groups. And each of us graduated from college and have jobs. That's because that's what was expected of us. That's what my parents wanted. And that's what we felt was the right thing to do out of respect for all the sacrifice that they made to relocate from Hong Kong to New York. Wow. And you are just such a great example of your whole family that pursuing the American dream. One of the things that you've kind of touched on lately, you've got a, you know, you had an education, an early education, but Judy, you won a full scholarship to Wesley College. I mean, that's big. Yeah. I graduated valedictorian and there were three of us going to college and I was going to just settle to go to a state university because that was the least cost. But my guidance counselor thought that I would be a really good fit and bless her. She saw in me something that I did not realize and I was not aware of because my parents didn't speak English. So when we were applying to colleges, we really relied on ourselves and our guidance counselor and Mrs. Brennan. I still remember her name. She said, no, I think you would love one of the seven sister schools. I applied to Mount Holyoke and Wellesley, and Wellesley gave me the most money. And so it was an interesting decision. <laughs> I mean, at the cost of education nowadays, I just made it because my parents didn't know, didn't have the context. They didn't know enough to guide me. So we really made our own decisions. Wow. You know what? How proud they must have been of you and, and continue, but just, you know, being able to do that. When my father passed away, we looked at his things that he left, and there was a picture in his wallet of me graduating as valedictorian of my high school. So oh, I, Judy. <laughs> and traditionally, Asian fathers or parents don't really express too much of an emotion. So with that picture, I still have it to this day. And I, even though he didn't verbally express it, I know what it meant to him. I just, I get chills when you said that. That's beautiful. Let's talk about that because you started working Fridays at IBM. And yes, I was a programmer in high school and they said, you know, you're doing really well. Would you like the opportunity to actually use it in real life, in, in the real world? Would you like to spend Fridays of senior year of high school at IBM in the marketing office? I said, absolutely. And during that experience, I shadow both the marketing rep and the systems engineer because they pair them together on teams to service customers. During that time, I got to work with the very first personal computer that IBM had. I couldn't believe it. It was so much fun. That is definitely interesting. I mean, I, I remember the first, you know, the first IBM computer. Growing up, I mean, obviously the role models, the buck stops with your parents, just what you've shared with me about their honesty, their hard work. You want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with your mom? Yeah, I love both my parents and they really were role models, but in particular, especially as a woman, because my mom, even though she was not raised to be literate, 
she barely had an education because that's in that time in society, she was not expected to go to school. But it was her love, her kindness, her compassion and grit. Her life experiences and her personal loss, both her father and during the Sino-Japanese War, they spent the day in the mountains, hidden in the mountains. And during the night, they would go back to the house to try to get food. And then they would hide in the mountains. And during this process, she lost her father. Her father passed away because all the bombs, when they would drop, it really, his heart just gave. But even though she lost everything, she lost grandfather, her father, it didn't harden her sense for life. She always believed in the goodness in each and she was just strong. She was, uh, to my kids who spent time with her when they were young in Chinatown, she was like the mayor of New York City, Chinatown. Everywhere they go, people knew her. And she always helped each time a cousin needed to come, who was coming into New York from Hong Kong or some or China, she would help either try to find a place for them closest to Chinatown to live so that they can start to assimilate and get settled. And she was always helping. I would sometimes surprise her when I was working and go down to Chinatown to take her out for lunch. And one time I found her on the steps of my elementary school with another woman. I'm saying, Mom, why are you sitting on the stoop? She said, well, (laughs) this woman's lost, but I managed to have her contact her son, and he's coming to get her. And so I said, okay. So I said, I can wait to have lunch with you. It's just little things like that. Uh, For example, there was a cousin of mine, my second cousin. My parents were able to take him with them when they left uh, mainland China. And my mom raised him. He's like our second older brother. And he lived with us in Hong Kong. And then when he had his family and he studied to be a chef, my mom did everything she could and we helped her fill out all the papers and we sponsored him to New York. So his whole family is here. Kids have graduated from college and they're working and he helped sponsor his extended family. Yeah. What a big heart and, and just an example of paying it forward. So Judy, there were other people in your life that I thought we, if we could just touch on. One of them was Ken Stern. Oh yes. Ken Stern was one of the most knowledgeable giving people I've met at IBM. He took all the trainees under his wings. And the one single thing that he taught me, which I still use to this day, is that whenever you have a question or you're trying to figure something out, seek the solution and the answers yourself first, because in this way, no one can ever take that away from you. I've not veered from that at all. Good advice. Very good advice. And also there was a Tai Chi master. Yes. When I was sent to help IBM open its business in mainland China, I started taking Tai Chi. When I came back here in the U.S., I was seeking a Tai Chi master and through happenstance, I found him. And he really, through working with him, spending time with him in his home, as well as in the the Tai Chi Center, I really gained confidence in myself to see more clearly both physically and spiritually in the world. And his key desire was for us to teach because he always believed that through education, that's the way to change the world. 
And so through my experience, I've had the also the honor and the pleasure of teaching Tai Chi as well as teaching in general. I, I created the Chinese language and culture program. So let's get to that because your professional life is like a who's who in leadership. I feel like, Judy, fearless is an understatement when it comes to you. (laughs) You know, when you're almost dropped off from Hong Kong to New York, not speaking a word of English, you have to figure out how am I going to survive? What do I need to do? And you got to get up to speed as quickly as you can. I've approached problems that way in everything I do in life. Yeah. Let's talk about, I mean, you have had an amazing 19-year career with IBM. You want to touch on, because you, you were the first Asian female to join their marketing office. Yes. I was supposed to be, because I was a programmer in high school, I was supposed to have a technical job at IBM, but they said, hey, we got a position in the IBM Wall Street branch office located on 77 Water Street. Would you like to join? I said, absolutely. I started there. After a year of training, I got a call and they said, you speak Chinese. I said, yes, I speak both Cantonese and Mandarin. Would you like to help start the operations in Beijing, China? I said, when do I go? (laughs) So I signed up for two years and extended for a third. I had the opportunity to be the lead orchestrating the first, uh, the biggest computer complex in a non-secure computer complex for IBM outside of the U.S., and it was for the Chinese Weather Bureau, collecting the data throughout the country and centralizing that data into a huge computer complex in Beijing. Tell us more. I mean, that obviously stands out at the top of the list, but what are your favorite memories from IBM in terms of what you did there? So that was one key accomplishment while in mainland China. I also worked with a lot of seismic data centers because we would be literally dropped uh, in what they call B areas, areas where tourists usually are not allowed to go. So I had the opportunity to fly in, drive to the middle of nowhere. There's just a building and I'm supposed to lead and orchestrate creating and bringing up an entire computer center. So that was exciting because I got to work with Texans. So we're like walking in the middle of town, which is a small place. I am 5'2", short hair. I look Asian. I don't have traditional long hair. And I am walking around with these six-foot jeans, cowboy sneakers, and cowboy hat. Because they were, you know, we we were in a seismic industry. So those were my third-party application people. But after that, when I came back, I had the opportunity when Lou Gershner came into IBM, he was trying to figure out how to you know, revitalize IBM. I was tapped to be one of three people in the emerging market department. And I went back to my roots as an econ major and crafted IBM's global emerging market strategy. I got to create that strategy, figure out how to implement it so that it's weaved into the fabric of the company And I did that. Uh, I was supposed to be in that job for, I think, two or three years. I finished it in a year and a half because I I met Zach, my husband, and I wanted to start a family. And I couldn't. It was hard to commute to IBM headquarters with a breast pump and a laptop. (laughs) Not a challenge that a typical male will have. (laughs) No. And, you know, toward the end, then I tried to 
do something part-time. I actually ended up in HR. I proved myself by creating a methodology for how to translate the diversity and inclusion policies into actual initiatives and program. So I did that because I was the only non-HR person in that team. And I did that and I proved that through developing and directing the microelectronics division's diversity strategy. Once I proved that, they said, you know what? We don't have an Asian American working on the diversity strategy for the Asian constituency. Would you do that? I said, absolutely. So I did that. (laughs) And you know what? I love, Judy, that there's this consistent, you just say yes, you know, and take these on. And it just... As a result, you've got this amazing career. I want to be conscious of time, and and we're going to be putting in a lot of information for our listeners. You're going to see Judy has had a lot more experience at IBM and and different things where she's made a huge impact, and, and that's going to be in her bio. But I don't want to take away from the time to talk about what you're doing today, which is really exciting with the company that you started, Green Hill Anti-Ballistics Corporation. Could you talk about that? Because you're really addressing a huge when you told me the stats, I was shocked about the damaged packaging and safety. Can we just kind of bridge to that and start talking about good? Greeno Anti-Ballistics was started. The genesis is an idea that my husband had because he is the inventor. And the passion and the goal was to how do we stop concussions for children, soldiers, and athletes? And then through our relocation to North Carolina, I had the opportunity to meet Rosemary Truman, who's the founder of the Center for Advancing Innovation, who was running at the time the supply chain and logistics challenge or scale challenge. So we said, you know, if we can protect people's heads, we can certainly protect your package. So we're utilizing the Green Hill Anti-Ballistics or GABC's patented material in the supply chain. And the way our solution works is it's a holistic solution to disrupt the supply chain. So with the use of the FDP material, it means there's less packing materials, which means smaller and lighter package for greater protection. So the retailer saves money because it ships smaller and lighter packages. The parcel delivery service makes more money because more and lighter packages can go into the same cargo bay and the same truck. And in the end, You've got happier customers who get what they pay for intact the first time, plus smaller and lighter packages enable drone delivery. And now in our post-COVID environment, the growth of e-commerce and just ordering things and having them shipped to your home is fueling the demand for more efficiency and capacity in the supply chain. So we're excited. Because if you look at the U.S. statistics just based on the three carriers, FedEx, UPS, and USPS, they do about on an annual or daily about 60 million packages. If you multiply that by 250 delivery days, you get about 300 million packages. I just wanted to mention that because I know you had shared with me that on average, there are 300 million damaged boxes in the U.S among them. So, wow. So your product is, and I just want to stress for our listeners that Judy and her husband have created a product with material that reduces up to 50% of the impact or force. And it's got the thinness, you said, of a dime, right? Right. Or less. Or less, which is huge. So the packaging is one area 
but safety. I love what you're doing. I mean, it's got huge implications for child safety, athletes, military, anybody who's using a helmet. Helmet or any other protective gear. So we've got those two verticals that we're going after in addition to supply chain because we want FTP and everything and anything we can put it in because it's a perfect kinetic energy reduction platform. Right. And Rosemary, just for the record, was the person that introduced me to Judy because she was so blown away by their business model and their product. Could you talk a little bit? I mean, the U.S. Army selected you in its first round of a technology search. Yes. One of the initiatives is soldier protection. And so we said, got the perfect material. It could be put on the helmets because a lot of soldiers that engage in theaters of conflict, IEDs, bombs, explosions, or when they have to blow out an entryway, that force, that impact, it travels. The current technology can address a projectile, projectile meaning a bullet, but accompanying that projectile is a lot of force, that compression wave. That is what we address. The current uh, equipment does not fully address that compression wave, and we address that with our material. That's amazing. It feels like you're at the beginning of just a huge opportunity here for the company. We're on a trajectory. COVID-19 slowed us down. But with every challenge comes opportunity. And through the COVID period, we actually doubled down. We expanded our stakeholder plan. And we actually engaged with commercialization partners, and other people that we would not have otherwise done in the time frame that we were projecting at that time. So, you know, you always have a plan of attack, but plans change and you have to be open and flexible to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves that you may not otherwise be given. Right. There is a silver lining here for you. Yes, there is. Well, we're trying to do our darndest because we're driven by our mission to make a difference, to save lives, as well as to have packages that get there in one piece the very first time. That's our goal. Good. That's that's amazing. Wow. And, and I wish you the best of luck with that. So as you're talking, I can. it's almost like I can hear your mom's message of strength. So you know what the next question is going to be, which is, you know, what's the best advice that you ever got? And I always like to say to guess or didn't take. And how did it change you? To be resilient. Running a startup, you have huge peaks and deep valleys. In both the peaks and the valleys, in that moment, you still have to be firm and focus on that mission because there will always be bumps, there will always be challenges along the way. But if you stay true to the mission, to what you're doing, to why you're doing it, and have that resilience, you'll come out the other end. And life is not only a journey, but it's an adventure. And when I marry my husband, he's always promised me life would always be an adventure with him. And he's delivered more than that. And so <laughs> the other part is to always be thankful and be open. Because when you're open, you can see possibilities and ways that you would not otherwise see. Like I said before, you always have a plan 
but plans change and you have to be flexible and you have to be open to an opportunity to maybe a segue that can actually open another door to a possibility to another way of doing things that you didn't think of. I love that, especially being open, because that's when you hear the committee in your head kind of gets to go to the side and you get to hear things. Yes. So, so Judy, I felt bad because I feel like we could go on for hours. You have so many <laughs> amazing things. I definitely want to loop back with you in the coming year. I would be delighted. But I do love to ask our guests just a fun question. If you could have one superpower, what would yours be? Definitely balance. You're pulled in so many directions all the time, especially in a startup. And because it's our own startups, it's so personal. Your emotions are so intense. When I'm balanced and I'm calm and my emotions are now not clouding my judgment, I can see much clearer through roadblocks as well as seeing possibilities. And it's challenging. It's not easy. And we're living in extremely trying times with COVID and the paralyzing politics. It's just so hard. But, you know, we either give into it or we just try. And I think that's brought me a lot of peace to be balanced, to be clear in what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, to say yes or to say no to things that come your way and always be thankful. Yeah, that's right. Gratitude goes a long way. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Judy, thank you. I feel bad that we're at the end of our show. Oh my I, God, time I has fly. I know. <laughs> and I feel like we've, and we've skipped over a lot. We're going to have to, we'll have that up on our site, but I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your journey and your just, your insights are excellent. They're beautiful. And I hope that our listeners take that to heart because it's great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm always willing to share because everyone has a story and has a struggle and adventure and a journey. And I think if we all share and learn from each other, we'll be better off and we'll be happier because it can sometimes feel lonely when you're in a startup, in a situation, but I don't think we're alone. I don't believe that. I'm with you. Totally with you. For people who want to get more information about you and about Green Hill Anti-Ballistics, where do we send them? My email is y e at greenhillantiballistics.com. And our website is forcedisruption.com. Forcedisruption.com. That's perfect. All right. So listeners out there, we'll also have this information up on the site as well as the podcast. And we look forward to our next show. So stay tuned for more great stories with amazing women. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.